applause right there. Thank you, Dustin. That was fantastic. I wish I was there at Circus Tricks to see you in all your glory. Yes, yes, absolutely. That's, that's awesome. Oh, you guys, great to see you. Uh, happy Memorial Day weekend, if we can say that. Can we say that? Happy Memorial Day weekend. What is Memorial Day weekend all about? It's, it's actually all about remembering those who have sacrificed, those who have fallen on behalf of protecting uh, our, our freedom and our way of life. And so uh, in a very small way, we simply want to acknowledge the fact that we live in an amazing country. We're so grateful to God for that. And afterwards, like Dustin said, we're going to have some American fair to uh, celebrate and reflect upon that. So please hang out with us afterwards. We love that. Well, one of the things, uh, if you're new to Mariner's Mission Life, that we like to say is we love to talk about how wherever you're at on your spiritual journey with God, however you got here this morning, whether you were going to see Aladdin and it was sold out and you heard there was free coffee and donuts and you wandered over here, praise Jesus, we're so glad that you made it today. Uh, or if you wandered from the bar or down the street and you came in, you heard about us, I love the fact that you are here. And so today, what we're in, we're in uh, the middle of a series called This Is The New That. And uh, the reason why we call it that is because when we look at the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, what he does is he usually takes a commonly held belief or an assumption or a way of doing life, and he confronts it. And he turns it absolutely upside down. And what he's doing is he's revealing the true nature of the kingdom of God that he has come to inaugurate, to begin, to embody, to extend an invitation for us as people to understand and be a part of. And so ultimately, this becomes the new that, according to Jesus. And last week, Michelle, Michelle Cater did an amazing job last week. Yes, let's give her a little applause right there as she talked with us about this as well while I was away up at man camp. And by the way, man camp was unbelievable. I was only there for a couple hours, uh, but it was amazing. And I, I have to just give a little shout out to all the Mission Life men that represented powerfully in the midst of uh, leading worship and participating in the Mancathlon. When I showed up to the Mancathlon, there was Dennis Zimmerman in all of his glory with his shirt off and, and against Marcus Perry. And they were about to leap down a slip and slide and they were covered in, I don't know what it was, Crisco? What was it? Dawn and water. Uh, okay, dawn and water. Got it, soap and water. And they literally competing against each other. This is what we do on spiritual retreats. Is uh, we, They leapt into the air onto the slip and slide down this huge hill with uh, their bare chests. And I think Dennis actually had to go to the hospital later. So uh, anyway, good stuff, guys. Really good stuff. But God did amazing things. It was so fun to see our guys represent there and uh, encounter God. So I love the fact that, that we got to do that. But I'm so excited to be back with you guys today because of what we are going to talk about in our next part of this series. So today, by the end of the time I'm going to be speaking with you, I'm going to, I'm going to let you know my goal. Here's my goal. I'm just going to let it out right now. Here is my goal. By the end of our time together, it's this. By the end of our 30, 35 minutes, I want you to forgive the person that you never thought you could forgive. That's my goal. By the end of our time together, that is my goal, is to do everything I can to help you understand and motivate you to forgive the person you never thought you could forgive. Sound crazy? All right, I'm gonna spend the next 35 minutes going after it, all right? So, for the last 10 years 
Unless you've been living in a cave, you and I have probably noticed that Marvel Studios has been pumping out superhero movies like every other month. Have you guys noticed this? Okay, do you guys know what I'm talking about? Who's been living in a cave? Somebody been living in a cave? Okay, a couple of us. Julie has. All right. Julie, last 10 years, all these movies are coming out. All these superhero movies are coming out. Like every couple months. Iron Man, right? The Hulk, Ant-Man, Captain America. And they all come together. All these superheroes are coming together in these epic blockbuster movies called The Avengers. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, thank God, thank God, thank you, thank you, Jesus. Okay, right? And so one of the things that we learn about the Avengers is they are the Earth's greatest superheroes. And they're always in very attractive body armor or spandex. Can I get an amen? All right? And so the idea behind all these movies, and we love these movies, we watch these movies, except for Julie Haley, we watch these movies, we love these movies, we flock these movies, all of these movies are based on this thing called the law of reciprocity. The law of reciprocity. You hurt my friends, I hurt you back. And it also plays out, this whole idea, this law of reciprocity plays out in every area of human life. Yet we don't look as good in body armor or spandex, and we don't have superpower or super friends. But we see this play out in every aspect of life. And there is actually a mutual benefit and response to this kind of social interaction. It can be positive and it can be negative. This law of reciprocity. So positive, when we do something like purchase something on Amazon Prime, what do we expect to have happen? To arrive at our doorstep. Even within 24 hours, we expect we're going to pay something and we're going to get something in return. Or when we go and buy coffee somewhere, and and, and then when we get our coffee, we've just paid them money, but for some weird reason, what do we say? Thank you. I just spent money, and I get to thank you for it, okay? So we do this. This is part of just the natural law of reciprocity we engage in all the time. And it's helpful for us, because we know what to expect, and so we say, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to expect this particular result. It's just how we navigate through life. But then there's also the not-so-positive aspect of that. And we see it play out in marriages and actually how people look at marriage itself. If you love me, I will love you back. If you meet me halfway, I'll meet you halfway. And so many relationships are kind of built on this understanding. You reject me, I will reject you back. And this is so normal we, we, we have reality TV shows based upon this whole thing, do we not? The Bachelorette, you guys, come on, what am I talking about? You guys love that show, right? The drama is every single week, and it's the same old thing, right? Why? Because everyone's operating on the law of reciprocity. But what happens is this. When we live this way long enough, we all get wounded along the way. Where someone didn't reciprocate, like they were supposed to. Or someone said something terrible to you and it stuck with you. When a divorce happened as a result of infidelity. Or when a business partner stabs you in the back. Or when a close friend turns on you. Or there's a tragedy due to negligence that cost you a loved one. And so what do we do in those moments? Well, vengeance takes on all kinds of forms, right? We need to get back. We need to figure out how to make things right. 
And so we found ourselves trying to create ways to protect our hearts and to find a way to overcome the wounds and the pains we've experienced all because of the law of reciprocity. And so how do we get back? How do we protect ourselves? We find ourselves doing all kinds of things. Like we avenge those things by getting into isolation with other people in a little community that says, you know what, we're going to go ahead and hate that person together because of what they've done. Or we avenge whatever's happened to us by confronting those people and antagonistic and even harmful physically in retaliation. Or how else do we avenge? We become very pious. We, we, we kind of take the high road, if you will, and we think, well, if I'm just going to be really religious and pious, I'm just going to look down upon those people and judge them. This is the avenger way. This is just so natural. It's just so part of the way in which we do life. And yet the cost of it is this. is we're walking around carrying these images, these burdens, these memories, and these wounds. And we're finding ourselves, not that we want it, getting bitter and angry and resentful. And it starts to play out in areas of our life that we don't want to admit. For example, when a name comes up in a conversation that just brings so much pain, what happens? Our blood starts to boil. Emotion starts to rise. Words come out of our mouth about that particular person. Are we really over that? Have we really found the healing that we ultimately want? Jesus has another way of taking revenge. Jesus offers us another way to respond to this law of reciprocity that is just part of the normal rhythm of our life. And wherever you're at today with God, with this whole Jesus thing, my guess is that you have been wounded and there are people and things in your life that you are struggling to forgive and move past because of what has happened to you. And so if that's you, I love the fact that you're here today. I'm with you in on this journey. But by the end of my time with you, this is my goal, is that you will understand how to forgive that person in your life that you feel is unforgivable. So when we feel that revenge is in order, Jesus is going to call us to revenge that is out of order. And ultimately, my hope is that we would find the freedom and the healing and the hope that Jesus wants you to experience even when we've been hurt by other people. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. If you're new to the Bible, that's fantastic. We've got a bulletin right in front of you. We've got scriptures up on the screen. We're diving into Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Let me give you a little background as we go there. Jesus has been teaching to these various crowds about this thing called the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is wherever the will of God is being uh, demonstrated. And Jesus is showing and embodying and bringing the kingdom of God in a new and powerful way to the people of Israel who thought they were uh, longing and, and looking for this kingdom of God to be established in a certain way, but Jesus was coming to establish it in a totally different way than they understood and right here in Matthew chapter 5, this is what uh, part of the Bible called uh, the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' most famous sermon that he is preaching and communicating. And what is he talking about? 
He's talking about the values or the ethics or the way of life and living under this new kingdom of God. He's just talked about these things called the beatitude. And now he's walking through a series of sayings where the people he was communicating to had all of these assumptions on the way God was operating in the world. And so he says this. He, he goes through a series of sayings right here in Matthew 5. You've heard it said, but I say to you. In other words, you've understood this to be the way of living in life, but I want you to know something. That what you've heard before, I am coming to fulfill and help you uh, get back to the proper interpretation of it. And so I'm here to correct and clarify what this ultimately means. So for example, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, he says this, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now what's interesting here is that nowhere in the Bible does it ever say to hate your enemy. What Jesus is referring to is their commonly held understanding of this passage in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17 through 18. Let's look at it real quick. Do not harbor hatred against your brother. Rebuke your neighbor directly, and you will not incur guilt because of him. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, what's God saying here? God's saying, look, I'm forming a new people, and this community is going to be demonstrating love among one another. You actually have to love your neighbor. You actually have to care for the person that lives in close proximity to yourself. One of the founding foundational tenets of being a part of God's people has always been to love your neighbor. But because of human brokenness, this whole idea and concept started getting infected with the law of reciprocity in the midst of it. And Jesus has noticed that a lot of the wise teachers, Israel's wise teachers over the centuries had misinterpreted some things and said, oh yeah, and hate your enemy as well. And so Jesus has come to clarify what that actually looks like and what that means. Now when we read this, we go, okay, what love actually means something a little bit different than what we think of. See, love here actually means to put into priority, to actually say, I'm committed to you. To love your neighbor is to make them a priority. You are committed, you are obligated to serve them in their need. Love is not necessarily a feeling according to the Bible. So what does hate mean? Hate means to go ahead and have a lower priority. In fact, to not be committed and to not be obligated to. It's a matter of a proper order. And so what happened is Jesus has these different kinds of people within the nation of Israel that are saying, you've got to hate your enemy. And who was the biggest enemy of that time? The Roman Empire. And so these different groups of people were responding to their enemy by hating their enemy Rome. And so some of them had this idea. If you were part of this group called the Essenes, you hated Rome so badly and you hated the nation of Israel the way they had been corrupted that you cloistered yourself away from everybody else and you formed this holy huddle and said, we're the people of God. The way we do life is the right way to do it. And we hate what the Romans are all about. So we're going to isolate ourselves away from this community. Then you had other people, the zealots. They were the military people. They were saying, we hate our enemies so much, we're going to confront them, we're going to kill them, we're going to assassinate them, we're going to murder them. 
We're going to hate our enemies just like God wants us to. And Jesus is responding to this response as well. And then there were the Pharisees, the religious leaders, that, that chose to live among uh, the other people, but they themselves said, you know what? We're going to hate our enemy by being very pious, by being very religious, and look down upon all of those who don't obey what we think is the correct interpretation of the law. So you had all these people responding and finding different ways to get back, to avenge, to hate, to respond to what they perceived was their enemy. And Jesus wants to clarify and correct them. You guys want to build all these labels. You want to create these markers. You want to separate. You want to distinguish. I'm here to clarify something for you. That this kind of approach to revenge is not what I am offering. I am offering a totally different way. Jesus reveals that those who attach their hearts to him will treat their enemies in such a way that is totally out of order. And so what can this look like with Jesus? What does revenge look like as a follower of Jesus? Matthew 5, verse 44. When revenge gets out of order, notice this. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, love is not just for your neighbor, the one in closest proximity to you. No longer, according to Jesus, is that the case. Love is not just for the one who loves you back, but the one who persecutes you. Now, what's the word persecute mean? It's not a real word that we use quite often. I, I, I use it a lot because I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan. Like, I'm always being persecuted, okay? But, but, but persecution is not a word that we often use in normal Orange County language. What does that mean? It actually means to impel. It means to zealously pursue. It means we've got these people whether we believe something different than they do or they're just out to get us and they hate us, whatever it is, but they're really making our life miserable. They're, they're people that are absolutely focused on, on just driving you absolutely nuts. And Jesus is saying, look, I want you to love your enemies and I want you to pray for those who drive you crazy. And so what's the point? Is when we understand this kind of revenge that Jesus is calling into, our love acts indiscriminately and without condition. Our love acts indiscriminately without conditions. Jesus is destroying the walls and the barriers and the labels. Why? Verse 45, second part of the verse. For he, God the Father, causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, my kingdom is based upon God's agape, unconditional love. It isn't limited to those who actually follow me. That my love is so overwhelming and so flourishing, it spills out into every part of creation. This is the heart of God. The Bible describes love in a variety of different ways. Some of you have heard this before. Uh, the Bible describes love or translates certain Greek words 
love, but they reflect different meanings. So there's eros, which is the romantic or sexual kind of love. There is phileo, which tends to be the friendship kind of love. And there is agape, which is reflective of God's unconditional love. A love without limits. A love for everybody. Whether you're following God or you're not. The Father is indiscriminate. This is as basic as the sun and the rain are available to all on the evil and the good. And when we live by the law of reciprocity, this is so offensive. It's like, I don't want that. I want that person to get what's coming to them. I want them to be punished for what they've done. I don't want that. When we're living by the law of reciprocity, this is absolutely unthinkable. We only see the injustice that's happened towards us. We start to look at who's on our side and who's against them and who deserves love and who doesn't deserve love. And I see this play out in my own family on a regular basis. You know, it's like, even this past week, you know, one of our daughters, who will be, renamed, be named nameless, uh, we wanted to celebrate an accomplishment. And so we're like, well, let's go to frozen yogurt. Yeah! And so in light of this accomplishment, we're going to go to frozen yogurt. Let's do it. Let's, we're all benefiting. And in the midst of this, the, the one that we're celebrating starts to realize, wait a minute, I don't like that everybody else gets frozen yogurt because of what I've done. And so they start to get a little bit pouty and a little bit irritated. Why do they get to benefit from my hard work? Right? They start to kind of look at their own lens of what is just and unjust. Instead of being grateful, they're pouting. They, they can't see the fact that mommy and daddy decided to bless them all with a sugar-packed dairy product. <laughs> can't you just be grateful? I don't, we don't need to do this. Now, I use rewards all the time with my kids, and I, I just naturally fall into the law of reciprocity because that's just what I just think like. There's obviously a time and a place for that, but... What God is doing, he's demonstrating his unconditional love. God doesn't just give us oxygen when we're willing to worship him. He rewards faith with forgiveness. But even before we have faith, he loves us enough to give us this beautiful world. So we all get sunshine. Well, normally in Southern California we do. We all get rain. We get basic needs for life. And did we do anything to deserve it? No. See, whether we love God, whether we hate God, whether we yell at God, whether we worship another God, Jesus says, look at creation to see the signs of God's love for everyone. And so Jesus is calling you and me to love like that. Where love is beyond passion, it, it's beyond friendship, it's beyond self-interest, where love is for the unlovable, where it's for one's enemies, and where compassion and generosity and forgiveness and mercy can start to flow to all people. And, and as if that wasn't difficult enough to consider, Jesus says to pray for those who persecute you. Notice this next point. Our prayer actually releases us from reciprocity. 
our prayer releases us from reciprocity. We're thinking, how on earth could I possibly do this? I can't do this. That's right. You can't. Prayer releases us from this natural bent towards reciprocity. Verse 46, notice, For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same, the non-Jews? In other words, you're just like everybody else. Everybody has their little group. Everybody has all the people that are on their side. They love each other. What's distinguishing about that? What's powerful about that? Nothing. Jesus seems to know something about our human nature. We won't do this without outside help beyond our pain, beyond our feelings, beyond our sense of justice. If you're like me and the people I talk with, we tend to pray for other things. But praying for those who have hurt us, praying for those who drive us crazy, praying for those people, where does that land on our prayer list? Wherever you're at in your prayer journey with God, what is prayer? It's conversation with God. And so where, where does praying for those who persecute us land? Well, there's a poll that was uh, conducted by Lifeway Research, and it found that many of us are very picky about who we will pray for. For instance, the poll revealed that we typically pray 82% of the time for who? Family and friends. 82% of the time, right? The next one, 74% of the time, who do we pray for our own problems and difficulties? And 37% of the time, we pray for our enemies. So about a third of the time. 12% government leaders. Strangely enough, here's a couple other ones just because I know you want them. 36% of the survey participants said they typically pray for financial prosperity. 21 pray specifically to win the lottery. And... Uh, 13% typically pray, pray for their favorite sports team to win. That's me. That's where I pray, absolutely. But we tend to do what? We tend to pray for those that we love. We, we pray to be released from problems and difficulties. And sometimes we pray for our enemies. But what is the content of those prayers? Jesus, do you mind sending a little lightning bolt to this particular address? Right? That's usually the content of our prayers for our enemies, but what if we prayed for our enemies, for those who persecuted us, rather than against those who don't just love us? See, what does prayer do? Prayer has the power to take ourself off the throne of our heart as judge and jury and put Jesus back as judge and jury over our heart. Prayer has the power to open up our hearts to allow the extraordinary power of compassion to come in. You and I do not have the capacity on our own. We're just naturally bent towards ourselves. And so even if we don't like it or even if we don't understand it, prayer really does release us from this cycle of reciprocity. Some of you have heard this story before, but I, I think it's appropriate to illustrate this. Uh, many years ago, I thought I was going to get married to a gal right out of college. And it was an incredibly tense relationship, in some ways unhealthy. 
And I thought I was going to marry this gal. She had said, I love you. I'd never said those words to any other person aside from my family before. I said, I love you back. We're dreaming and thinking about the future. And she was leading me in all that. And in the midst of it all, what happens is I discover that she still has feelings for an ex-boyfriend that she had been dating for years before she ended up meeting me. And she ends up breaking up with me, destroying my heart, and goes back to this guy. And I'm reeling from this. I never experienced this before. I felt betrayed. And in the midst of all of that, I was really having a hard time getting over this. I was just like, wow. I was reaching out to God. I was praying. I was angry. I'm reading all these books. I'm doing all this stuff. I'm like, I need to get over this. And one day I'm praying and I, I really felt the Lord say, and when I say say, it was an impression. It was a mental thought. Pray for her. What? I don't want to pray for her. I want to pray for me pray for her? What are you talking about? In fact, I heard pray for them. Pray for her relationship with her ex-boyfriend. Pray that they would thrive. Pray that they would have a Christ-centered relationship. Pray that they would get married and that they would grow together to become a demonstration of God's good grace and love. And I was like, what? Are you kidding me? She just destroyed my heart. And you want me to pray for her? You want me to pray blessings on her? That's the last thing I want to do. But I started to do it. And you know what happened in the midst of that? I was incredibly surprised by that. I started to be healed. I started to find freedom. When, that, when her name would come up, I wouldn't bristle as I had done before. I started to overcome my heart for vengeance. And in a room like this, I know every single one of you, like me, has been hurt. And maybe revenge is too strong of a word, or maybe it's not strong enough. But what if God's love really is strong enough to help you put that revenge out of the natural order of things? See, when we pray, Jesus will empower you as you pray to Him and pray for that person who has hurt you. So what if we decide to actually do this? What if we actually start to engage in this kind of living? We will start to share God's loving nature. We'll start to share His loving nature. In other words, the world will see through us what God's love actually looks like. Verse 45, the beginning part of the verse. So that you may be children of your Father in heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, as you engage in this, as you love your enemies, as you pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. In other words, you will become more like your heavenly Father. Verse 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, that's easy. We'll just, no problem. We'll just be perfect. That'll be great, right? Is that what he's talking about? What is he talking about? Perfection here does not mean we will never make mistakes. It's the Greek word teleos which means end or goal, wholeness or completeness. In what? In living out the love of God. Being perfect is becoming as loving as our Heavenly Father is. That's the goal. What is the Christian life? What's the end goal? It's to become the most loving person we can possibly be. Why? Because it reflects our Heavenly Father. 
It reflects His heart. It reflects His goodness and His love no matter who is in front of us. Be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And when we don't do this, and when we don't live this out, when we don't try to take steps to do this, what happens? We just reveal the character and the nature of the world. To illustrate this, I, have a, I found a letter that a neighbor sent to another neighbor, and it says this. Dear Frank, we've been neighbors for six tumultuous years. When you borrowed my tiller, you returned it in pieces. When I was sick, you blasted rap music. When your dog went to the bathroom all over my lawn, you laughed. I could go on, but I'm certainly not one to hold grudges. So I'm writing this letter to tell you that your house is on fire. <laughs> Cordially, Bob. Not Bob on Hayden. <laughs> See, the church is not another social club. You know, some of us were exploring and checking Jesus out and we're looking for churches and connection. That's okay. But the church does not exist to, to make friendships. The church exists to make us more like our Heavenly Father. We get friendships. Actually, we get family as a byproduct of that. But Jesus is all about transforming His church family to become more like Himself, a reflection of the Father. Mission life, this church, oh, it's all about enjoying, expressing and extending this invitation to this love and this life of Jesus to all people. See, what sets God's people apart is not loving whomever is in our holy huddle. This love is to overflow into all kinds of people, wherever they're at on their journey, with no strings attached whether you ever come on a Sunday or not, whether you ever give your life to Jesus or not, whether you swear like crazy, sleep around, whatever, you are still loved if you are outside of God's family. But the reason why we do that is so you ultimately will understand the grace and the love of the Father that you're ultimately longing for. That ultimately it's your decision whether you come to God or not. But that will never stop us from loving you, no matter where you're at. So if we want to know God and love God, we're going to grow in this new identity as his kids, as we take steps to practice this kind of love. And our enemies are an opportunity for us to show off God's love to a hurting, to a skeptical broken and angry world. So if you're taking notes, with Jesus, love is the new revenge. Love is the new revenge. See, Jesus is not calling us to be doormats. When we think about this, Jesus is not saying, roll over. What does Jesus say all throughout the scriptures? Hey, if someone calls you to go ahead and pick up his bag and walk with him, you go the extra mile. Is that rolling over? No. If someone hits you on this cheek, you turn the other cheek. Is that rolling over? Not at all. Because what's happening is in the midst of all of that, we'll see this here in the verse coming up in Romans, is you are giving people an opportunity to be ashamed. Ashamed in the best possible way. Ashamed to see 
the grace and the power of this love that actually causes people to do those kinds of things. And that ultimately people would turn back towards God. Love is the new revenge. But this kind of love costs, doesn't it? Look at the life of Jesus. What if we actually did this? What if we actually embraced this idea of the love is the new revenge? It would call us to do some crazy things. It would call us to be indiscriminate. That we would stop drawing lines about who deserves our, our love or not. It would call us to be bold, to penetrate social barriers and ethnic barriers and gender barriers and political barriers. It would call us to be risky. It would call us to take time and cost money to invest in the lives of people around us that, again, we're not expecting anything in return. It would call us to serve, expecting nothing in return. It would call us to love that isn't convenient. One of the things I've realized in my own life is that loving people is incredibly inconvenient. It's really annoying, isn't it? I honestly, I want my life to be like Amazon Prime. I just want to just like mail it in, ship it to me, get it done. But Jesus says, no, that doesn't have the power to transform your character. Comfort does not transform your character. It's difficulty. It's adversity. It's sacrifice. And this is what cost Jesus to do what Jesus did for us. Look at Luke 23, verse 34. As Jesus is literally dying on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And they divided his clothes and they cast lots. Here is Jesus dying for the sins of humanity. <laughs> You're going, I've come so that you can receive the forgiveness of sin forever. And you're still not getting it. Father, would you forgive them? He gave it all. So what's God inviting you into today? I believe he is calling you and me to be a part of a new Avenger war, if you will, where we avenge our enemies with love. And it all starts today by forgiving that person that you think is absolutely unforgivable, that has scarred you, that has persecuted you, that has betrayed you. And if you're like me, the thing that has held you back from getting this done is a fear that they will get off free and clear. Because there's a part of us that holds on to this anger and this bitterness because we're afraid if we let this go, they're never going to get what's coming to them. They're never going to get it. And I don't know your story, but here's one, a story I came across of someone who knows that feeling but because of Jesus, found a way to avenge with love when he had every reason to hate. A guy by the name of Chris Carrier of Coral Gables, Florida. He was abducted when he was 10 years old. And his kidnapper actually worked for his father's company. And his kidnapper was so angry at this kid's father for firing him for negligence and all these kind of things he actually woos this kid into his RV, takes him out to a secluded area, burns him with cigarettes, stabs him numerous times with an ice pick, then shoots him in the head and leaves him to die in the Everglades of Florida. A couple days go, go by, and miraculously, this kid is picked up, and he survives. He lost sight in one eye, 
and no one was ever arrested. Until recently, a man confessed to the crime many, many years later. Carrier, the boy, now had become a youth pastor. He had encountered the love of Jesus Christ. He had turned his life to Christ. And in the midst of all of his history and his background, he hears about this person who's confessed to the crime that has taken so much away from him. And what does he do? He goes to see him. And he doesn't yell at him. He doesn't harm him. He listens to him. And he finds this David McAllister, a 77-year-old ex-convict, frail and blind, living in a nursing home. And Carrier has begun visiting him often and starts to read to McAllister from the Bible and prays with him. And this kind of love and ministry opened the door for McAllister to give his life to Christ before he passed away. Now this is a crazy story. And when asked, Carrier uh, responds to this, because it's like, how on earth can you possibly forgive this guy? Carrier said this. He said, well, many people can't understand how I could forgive David McAllister. From my point of view, I couldn't not forgive him. If I'd chosen to hate him all these years or spent my life looking for revenge, then I wouldn't be the man I am today. The man my wife and children love, the man God has helped me to be. Can you imagine if we all took another step as if love is the new revenge in our life? As the new Avengers, I believe that the war we wage isn't against this world. It's for this world over the evil that has enslaved it. So what do we do with the wrong that's been done to us, the people we love? See, I think for many of us, what holds us back is this whole idea of what's going to happen with those people. And so for maybe for us to take a step, we need to be reminded in Romans chapter 12 that God is the one who's in charge of vengeance. Verse 19, friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. In other words, you will shame him in such a way that he will be open to turn from his way of life and turn to the grace and the love and the forgiveness that comes from God. Verse 21, don't be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Friends, here's what I want to leave us with. When we hold on to the bitterness and the anger and the resentment we are turning away from the overwhelming love of Jesus. And we're allowing evil to conquer our hearts. We're enslaved, whether we realize that or not. Jesus wants to heal and free you and I from that. Vengeance belongs to God. So right now I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. I want you to have an opportunity to talk to God, to pray to Him, to invite Him to speak to you about who in your life you need to forgive. And in that moment, to admit, Jesus, I need help. I need to forgive this person. And right now, I want to forgive. I want to take my next step, and I want to leave you with this. Forgiving someone does not mean that trust has been earned. It doesn't mean that everything is, everything is all honky-dory. It's a journey, and it's a process. But your first step is simply acknowledging and admitting, Jesus... Love is the new revenge. And I want to live like that. And so talk to God. 
Confess that to him and start the journey of freeing yourself to love the way Jesus has called us to love. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this space that we get to do some hard work where you want to do some heart surgery on each of us. Your love is overwhelming. Your forgiveness is available through Christ. And we're so grateful for that. God, would you speak to our hearts right now about that person that's hurt us, that we have really struggled to forgive. And God, would we, by your grace and power, be able to admit that and confess that and not only ask for forgiveness in our own life, but then to extend that forgiveness to them. And to take maybe even another step to demonstrate the kind of love that you have for us to them in some maybe even just small way this week. I don't know what that looks like for each person in here, but you do. So God, would you speak to us now in light of your amazing grace? Amen.